before we before we open the word today, we want to take time and um, we want to remember those who are in the path currently of Hurricane Irma. I think it's uh, not just those who are in the path, but those who have already been affected. This is a, a series of storms. We don't want to forget those who have been affected by Harvey as well. Um, that have just decimated islands. And it leaves a lot of people asking questions. It leaves a lot of people in fear. It leaves a lot with anxiety. But as we pray, we also pray knowing that we are praying to the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. We are praying to the one that we know, just as we looked at just a, a couple weeks ago, who calmed the storm with a simple command. An ordinary, simple command. Be still. And we're going to pray for him to do just that. My prayer literally is, is that that storm will do a left-hand turn <laughs> straight into the middle of the gulf and just die out. And God can do that. No question about it. But if he chooses not to do that, he is still sovereign. He is still in control. And there's nothing going to change that. And as Christians, we don't have answers to every single why question. But we know the one who does. And we can trust, even in the midst of the storm, God is working all things for his glory. That goes for the storms in your life as well today. In fact, if you have prayer requests, you have those things in your own life and the areas people you're praying for, yourself included, you can just place those in that little black giving box right over there. Place those in there, drop those in, and we'd be happy to pray for you in the midst of those. But right now, we want to go praying for all of those who have been affected and continue to be affected by this storm. So join me in prayer. Lord, we, we come today with, uh, in many cases, a heavy heart. Many of us have loved ones and friends that are in Florida right now. Many of us have been on these islands that have been affected. From Barbuda to St. Martin. Or just destruction. And right now, Lord, we have Florida in the crosshairs right now. And we pray that you will calm this storm. You will have it cease to exist. Yes, for the safety of the people, but Lord, also primarily for your glory. Lord, do what only you can do and calm this storm. But Lord, if you choose not to, I pray that you will give those in its path, the ability to rest even in the midst of the storm. Those Christians who are in the path right now, Lord, I pray that you will help them to, to trust in you, to rest in you, to understand with no uncertain terms that you've got this and you're working every detail for your glory. And those who are not believers, Lord, I pray that you will use this storm to open eyes and ears to hear and to understand the gospel. Lord, I pray that relief workers and efforts that are taking place will open doors for the advancement of, of, of your word, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, continue to be with the relief efforts and the ongoing work in, in Houston. Lord, we even are reminded and we continue to pray for brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution in all different places and storms of various kinds from, from those who are Christians in, in North Korea and South Korea and the Japan and the surrounding islands, Lord, who are facing times of uncertainty. For those in this room who are facing times of uncertainty, Lord, help us to realize that you are in control. And help us to turn our eyes and to fix them upon you. To trust when it's hard to trust. 
Lord, give us the confidence to know that you that you've got this. Lord, now as we open up your word, Lord, I pray that we'll be convicted by it. I pray that we'll be encouraged by it. Lord, let your word do the work today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. As you take a seat, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're picking up in chapter 6 today. And as you're opening, as you're turning to Mark chapter 6, think about the most popular people in our culture today. Don't say them out loud. We'll get a whole array of different opinions and thoughts there. But I would dare say probably the, uh, there's likely no one in our country more popular than Jesus. You're thinking, really? Jesus? Well, yeah, just check the news racks, check the, the television programming, check the, the Hallmark aisle at the, at the store and t-shirts and stores and conversations. Jesus is very popular within our culture. Even non-Christians dare say uh, anything negative about him. We look and we see even in a culture of political correctness, the vast majority of people are claiming that they believe in, in Jesus, regardless of what that belief may be. So whether on the, they're on the left side or the right side of a political aisle, or whether they are on one side or the other side of a, of a protest, people are claiming to believe in Jesus. The question now comes is, what Jesus are they claiming to believe in? What, what identifies the person that they are believing in as the biblical Jesus, as the right Jesus? Because we start thinking about all the different understandings that people have within our culture of Jesus. We're, list, we're left with a list of, of a litany of, of ideas of who Jesus is. Just a few of them that kind of are, are jotted down here are, you have the, the therapeutic Jesus. You're familiar with the therapeutic Jesus? Therapeutic Jesus is there to hear all your, your anxiety and all your problems and all your situations and, and you're kind of laying on the couch and he's there to encourage you. Now with any of all of these, there's little truths to be found, but we also see that there's the open-minded Jesus. This, this, this idea of Jesus is he's open to everyone, loves everyone, no matter what, at all times, no matter the circumstances, except for the person who's not open-minded uh, in their beliefs as he is. There's Touchdown Jesus. He's very popular today, uh, especially on today. He was popular yesterday as well. Touchdown Jesus uh, is, uh, by the name of it, he helps uh, Christian athletes run faster, jump higher, and helps their football team win the game. He's being prayed to on both sides of the field today. And, uh, you know, it kind of comes back uh, on, you could just, I could just keep going on that one. There's the uh, best life now Jesus who wants you to be healthy and happy and everything to go well with your life and just to be all that you can be, like a good army commercial. We have that idea of Jesus. You have the, the rebel Jesus who, you know, he, he's kind of out to, hates religion, hates churches, hates doctrine. He's got it figured out. There's a new way to do it. The real Christianity. There's, there's the Hallmark understanding of Jesus. We can credit this one to all the cheesy Christian movies and the Hallmark cards and the t-shirts that are just kind of want to make you gag and throw up. And, you know, I remember the one I shared with you, instead of a bread, crumb, and fish, it's a, a, it's a instead of a, well, anyway, I butchered it, a bread, crumb, and fish, Abercrombie and Fitch, you know, that one. There's also the boyfriend Jesus. You familiar with this one? Boyfriend Jesus is the one where he kind of just wraps your arm around you and you're just singing intoxicating love songs over and over. Uh, you know, that kind of sappy love song, Jesus. We could just go on with all these different cliches and understandings about Jesus. And again, there's truth to be found in, in, in various ones. It's not saying that all of these things are just blatantly wrong. But when we stop, none of them are identifiable clearly to Jesus Christ, the Son of God who this gospel, who this Bible from cover to cover is identifying. What this entire series is laid out to do is to answer two questions. Who is this Jesus and what does it mean to be his disciple? I don't think there, there's more pertinent question facing our culture today or the church today than to be able to answer these questions. Who is this Jesus and what does it mean to follow him. What does it mean to be his disciple? And so we pick up today looking and answering these questions in Mark chapter 6, 
beginning in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, he has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came and, and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her, to her mother, for what should I ask? And, he, and she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with a haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that had done and taught. So what we have before us again today is a, another sandwich structure where Mark has taken one thing, kind of inserted another in the middle, kind of separating the accounts. Mark starts with the sending out of the 12 apostles, sending them out to, under his authority to do what he's doing, do, be his representatives of teaching and doing the things that Christ has been doing. But then he immediately cuts away. He cuts away and we get a detailed uh, area of telling why John the Baptist was in prison, why he lost his head, and then all of a sudden he cuts back to the disciples, the apostles returning from the mission that Jesus had sent them out to do. And the question is why? Why would Mark insert this story, this account about John the Baptist's imprisonment, his death, right in between the sending out and the returning of the, the apostles? Why, why would he place that there? Again, I think it's important for us to understand the context, the original audience of who this letter, who this gospel is to. It's being written to Roman Christians who are under the persecution of the Roman Emperor Nero. They're being persecuted severely for their faith. They're facing death. They're facing persecution. They're facing many storms and trials. And what Mark is, is inserting this in, and he's saying, okay, right between the sending out, right between the returning, he's sending in this, this, uh, this example of death and persecution. He's saying, okay, if you're going to follow Jesus, you can expect to be treated like Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can expect to be treated like Jesus. So then the question comes for each and every one of us in this room, what does it biblically look like to follow Jesus? Not popular culture understanding. But what does it biblically look like to follow Jesus? Universally. Then, this day and age, and today, and in every single culture around the world, what does it look like to follow Jesus? 
Now, obviously, we only have a, a short amount of time to be together. We can't break this down uh, endlessly. But we're going to look at three points, each containing a, a few little subpoints in, inside of them. Number one, the call to follow Jesus is a call to go. That's what we see in verses 7 through 13. Jesus is sending out the 12 as his authorized and appointed representatives. When they speak or act, they are speaking and acting under the authority of who? King Jesus. They're, they're going out, as we see in 2 Corinthians, as every Christian today is going out as ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us as His representatives, as His ambassadors. So, for every Christian who's going out, who's called to go, or as we are going, we are going, number one, under the authority of who? Jesus. We're going under the authority of King Jesus. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Jesus has the authority over creation. He has authority over the demoniac. He has authority even over death. As the apostles, they possess absolutely no authority in and of themselves other than the authority that Jesus himself has given them. Neither do we. We possess no authority outside the authority of Christ. And when he issues the Great Commission, the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28, he starts in verse 18. He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We often kind of leave that part off and then we go straight to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But he says, Go therefore because. He, Jesus, has all authority, has been given to Him, and now He is commanding His followers, go, or as you are going into the world, it's going to be a natural part of your life and an intentional part of your life. As you are going, being sent out, you're going under the authority of Jesus. Meaning we have no flexibility in our message. We have no flexibility in the message that He has given us to proclaim. Two, we go completely dependent upon Jesus. So we're going, but we're going completely dependent upon Him. Notice what Jesus instructs them to take with them as they go. And it's not much. We see that He says, take a staff. He says, take your sandals on your feet. <laughs> and take your tunic that's on your body so you don't go naked. And then take a belt that's around your waist. And Go. That's it. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. He, he's telling them to go. And the reason why he's telling them to go is we look at this is we begin to, to see some commonality, interestingly enough, with God's commands when he says the Hebrew, Hebrews to leave out of Egypt. These are the same four items that he tells them to take with him. You just take with you these basic items and, and flee out of, of Egypt. This is another reminder here that Jesus came to lead a, lead a new exodus. That Jesus is a greater Moses. Only God was capable of being able to free these Israelites, these Hebrews, from the captivity that they had in Egypt. Only God can do that. And it's only God who can free us from the sinful captivity that we find ourselves in. And He has done so through the exclusive work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we go out to proclaim this message. We go with this message. We are going completely dependent upon Him. We can't make the results happen. At least not genuine results. Though we really want to, don't we? <laughs> we really want to try to make things happen. But the emphasis that we see here is on faith. It's on dependence. There's nothing that matters here. Not our ability, not our education, not our reputation, not our finances, but our complete dependence upon Jesus. The apostles can do nothing apart from the power of Christ and neither can we. I think it's a very important thing for us to remember. Because in a world where we're trying to always fix things and we're trying to make sure that we're in control, we have to realize we're not. And we know that. But we sure fight against it, don't we? Sometimes these, these storms of life, not just referring to a hurricane because they don't have all the why questions there, but they just really show us how a lack of control we have. 
and how dependent we are upon God. Number two, the call to follow Jesus is a call to proclaim. It's a call to proclaim. There's a famous quote that is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. How many of you have heard that quote? And now I'm not going to put you on the spot and say how many of you have posted it, how many of this. It sounds good. It means well. There's nothing wrong about, about what it's intending. But there are two glaring problems with this quote. One is St. Francis of Assisi uh, never said it or never wrote it. Uh, there's no record of this ever being attributed to him whatsoever. So it's kind of falsely credited it to him. He was more of a Jonathan Edwards type anyway, kind of a sinners in the hands of an angry God. He wasn't a sissy like his name says. Uh, there he was kind of more focused in that area. And two, it, it creates an unnecessary and unhealthy dichotomy between our actions and our words. And what I mean by that is, yes, our actions are important. Actions are always important. Yes, we need to preach the gospel with our actions. We need to be kind one to another. We can destroy the gospel witness by our actions in an instant. Can we not? <laughs> but we also see that for the gospel to be received, it must be heard. How are they to believe if they have never heard? It is essential for individuals to hear the gospel. Jesus came doing what? Proclaiming. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and calling people to repent and to believe in the gospel. Jesus is teaching and people aren't getting ticked off with Jesus. They're not getting offended by Jesus because he's doing nice things for people. They're becoming offended by Jesus because of his teaching. Who he's claiming himself to be and what he is saying in terms of the kingdom of God. They're becoming offended by that. He came sowing the seed for all to be able to hear. And some by the grace of God to understand. So when Jesus sends out, whether it's the 12 apostles or whether it's every believer today, when he sends us out, he's sending us out to do the same. To proclaim the gospel. To proclaim the truth. So one, when we go, we go proclaiming the biblical Jesus. We do not go proclaiming a Jesus of fanciful imagination or sentimentalism. Not a Jesus who, we do not proclaim a Jesus who conforms to our worldview or placates to our way of life, though we're tempted to. That's the Jesus we feel most comfortable with. A Jesus who kind of fits in a little black box that we've designed, that kind of fits our way of life. That, that's the Jesus we have in our mind. But see, no matter how sincere our belief is in a Jesus of, of our making, it does not bring validity to the existence of that Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. If you're traveling east, but your destination is west, and you're convinced that you're going the right direction, you're sincere that you're going the right direction. Are you right? No. You're sincerely wrong. And sadly, many of us in the room have been there. <laughs> we, we sincerely thought we were going in the right direction while we're driving somewhere, while we're going somewhere, only to find out we're going in the wrong direction. So it is with life. We can be sincere all we want. We can sincerely believe in Jesus, have a high view of Jesus, but if the Jesus we believe in is not the biblical Jesus, he's only a Jesus of our own making and our own imagination. See, we are all very guilty of the temptation to create Jesus into our image instead of being conformed into his. That is the temptation that is always around us. As we see in the text today, we see a very high view of Jesus that is held. We see King Herod, he believed Jesus to be the resurrected John the Baptist. Others believed him to be, the, be Elijah. And still others believed him to be the prophet, like one of the prophets of old. All of which are high views of Jesus. If any of us were put into that category and they put us in that association, we'd be like, wow. That's, that's, that's humbling to be associated in the names of any of these people in that category. But Jesus is no ordinary man. 
Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is the eternal son of the most high God. He has never not existed. He is the second person of the Trinity, the word of God in flesh. He is born of a virgin, literally. Literally lived a perfectly sinless life. Literally died upon the cross. Literally was buried in the grave. And after three days, literally rose from the dead. And right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. And until the divinely appointed time when He will return to claim His bride, the church. And He will make all things new. And He will bring judgment to this fallen world. And this Jesus, this Jesus is the only Jesus who can save no other. No matter how sincere a belief may be, this is the only biblical Jesus. This is the Jesus Christians believe. This is the Jesus Christians are sent out to proclaim and to deny any of these truths or to believe anything to the contrary is not Christian. Two, we go proclaiming a message of repentance. So first, we're holding out, we're proclaiming the biblical Jesus for who He is. Holy, righteous, sinless Son of God. Behold Him. Receive Him by grace, through faith. Receive this glorious Jesus. And we're also calling people to a message of repentance. So we see his, his mark here as Jesus is sending out his apostles in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should what? Repent. It's like a bad word these days. People are uncomfortable with this word here. It, it begins to kind of make people uncomfortable. Like, what do you mean by this? Well, here, here's what we mean by this. It's a call to turn from anything that goes against the will of God and turn to Jesus. Yes, we could break these definitions down further, but it's what it is in its essence. It's a call to pursue holiness. It's a call to pursue holiness. And a lot of times when we think of holiness, we, we can think of that in a realm of, of legalism and impossibility, but it's no, none of those things. And it's where we can find ourselves so easily focusing on sin plural, that we miss focusing on sin singular. This is what I mean by that. Sin singular is our problem. It's the problem of all humanity. We are born in and we are dead in our trespasses of sin. We are dead in our sin. We have no hope apart from Christ. And it's because of our sin singular that we have all kinds of sin plural, don't we? We can just look at our life as we're infested with all kinds of sin, plural. Sin being unholy, hated by God, deserving of eternal judgment. And our, our, our sinful tendency can be to think that if I can just take away all those sins, plural, kind of clean myself up, pretty myself up, then I can be made right with God. Ever felt that way? I know we don't often want to admit it, but we're all kind of that spot of like, oh, I can, I can do this. I can, I'll clean this side of myself up. And we're not just resting in the grace of God to do that in our life. But here's what we need to understand. If we remain in unbelief as it pertains to the biblical Jesus, no matter where our sincerity may lie, it doesn't matter how cleaned up our life may be. If we are not believing in the biblical Jesus, then we are all condemned to judgment. Holiness, however, when we look at holiness, we need to understand that holiness, our holiness, is the goal, is the aim of redemption. And we are justified, made right with God. Praise the Lord. That's a praise the Lord worthy moment, amen? <laughs> we are justified, made right with a holy God, the holy God, but it doesn't stop there. See, that's a lot of times where we want to take Christianity, the gospel, and say it's like a get-out-of-hell-free card. Like, we're justified, we're made right before God, and therefore He can love me no matter what, and I'm going to live however I want, and I'm going to do whatever I want. Wrong. That's not, the, that's not biblical Christianity. 
That's not biblical discipleship. What we see, we are justified. We are made right with God. We, we believe, therefore we are justified. As a result, then we obey. But in that part of working it out, he is sanctifying us. We are justified that we may be sanctified. You know what sanctified means? Made, made, made into the image and the likeness of Christ. Being conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. So the moment that you are saved, you're never more justified than you are at that moment. You will never be more right in the eyes of God than you are at that moment. But your sanctification will continue to take place over your lifetime. There will be times where you will appear more sanctified than others. <laughs> Sometimes at different points in the same day. <laughs> there will be those times. But we are being sanctified, conformed into the likeness of Christ so that we may be made holy. The aim of our redemption is our holiness. That we would walk in Christ's likeness. That we would love what God loves. That we obey God's commands. Holiness isn't just being a good person and obeying the rules. That, that's legalism. Holiness is treasuring Christ above all else. And that's what we're calling to. It's what we want to put before you. That Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is the one we're selling everything for. He is all glorious. Holiness is growing to hate what God hates and to love what God loves. Does that describe you today? Do you hate what God hates? Do you love what God loves? Is that a, a growing learning that's taking place in your life? I'm going to tell you this is only possible by the grace of God. We cannot do this on our own. It will not happen in our own efforts. Yes, we can clean ourselves up for a period of time, kind of put our makeup on ourselves and make us look good for a season, but we cannot change our hearts. That only happens by the grace of God. Repentance, brothers and sisters, it does not save us, nor is it a one-time event. But if we have not repentance, we have not Christ. If we have not repentance, we have not Christ. No matter what we profess, no matter our sincerity, if we show disregard for Christ by habitually giving ourselves over to unrepentant sin, then heaven is not our home. We need to take these very seriously. Repentance is the evidence that we are a new creation in Christ. Repentance, daily repentance, continual repentance is that evidence that we are walking with Christ. And our continued repentance is that continued evidence. So plain and simple, sin is sin as defined by God in His Word. There's the way of God and there's the way of the world. And what we often want to do is we want to kind of create a gray area. But the Word of God doesn't do that. There's the way of God and there's the way of the world. Are, are we walking with God or are we walking with the world? And what we who are in Christ must continually to fight is to flee from this world and to cling to Christ. Again, not by our efforts, but by the grace of God. To rest in Him in the storms. To flee, to repel, to put away sin by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we must call others to do the same. We must call others to do the same. Look at John the Baptist. We were told in chapter 1 that he was arrested. But we're never told why he was arrested until now. Now we're, we're told right here in the midst of Jesus sending out and, and them returning what happens to John the Baptist. See, Herodias... Herod's wife, follow along with me on this one, was also Herod's niece, and she was married to Herod's half-brother, Philip, okay? If, if you've lost count already, don't worry, you're not alone. But Herod persuaded Herodias to divorce her husband, his half-brother, and then in the process, marry him. And for that to happen, he divorced his wife, got rid of her. That's a story for another day. So in other words, plain and simple, dude's living in unrepentant sin. Blatant, unrepentant sin. And John calls him out in verse 18. And he says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What gives John the right to do that? 
What gives him the right to speak into to Herod's life here? The authority of the Word of God. The authority of the Word of God. This isn't just something John feels uncomfortable with. It wasn't one of those areas of like, well, John just grew up differently and John feels a little kind of upset about it. And no, this is clearly in the Word of God. It's sin against God as defined by the Word of God. Again, sin is sin. It's not gray here. And what the Bible calls sin, we have no place to call holy regardless of how it is perceived and embraced by the larger culture. But as we proclaim the gospel, we need to understand, number three, we go proclaiming a message many will reject. We go proclaiming a message many will reject. Case in point, look how Herodias responds to John when he, when he says, when he calls Herod out on, on, on his sin. She's basically saying in a paraphrased sense, what gives you the right to judge me? What gives you the right to tell me and Herod what we're doing is sinful? How can you tell us that? She holds a grudge. She wants him dead. That's what we see here. This is why John is in prison. And the reason he's in prison and not dead already is because Herod kind of likes John. Herod thinks John is righteous. He thinks he's, he's, a, he's a holy guy. Herod likes to listen to John. And even though he's perplexed by John, he gladly hears him. We see this taking place. But neither does he believe. How do we know this? Because he doesn't repent. You know what that reminds us of? It reminds us that listening ears don't always translate to believing hearts. Listening ears don't always translate to believing hearts. Again, it's the parable of the sower and the seed. That's why he says this is the key to understanding all the parables. Jesus comes and he's sowing the seed all over the field. It's landing on all the soil. Some is landing on the path and some is landing on the rocky soil and some is landing among the thorns. But it's only the seed that lands on the good soil that produces fruit. It's only the seed that lands on the good soil that produces an abundant harvest. And again, I believe this is the reason why Mark is sandwiching this account in between the sending out and the returning of the disciples. Because it's a reminder to the original audience, the Roman Christians being persecuted under Emperor Nero, and a reminder to us that there are many in the crowds, many in the world who will reject this message, even will have respond with hostility towards this message. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand if we don't already, the gospel is offensive to an unbelieving world. It is an offensive message to an unbelieving world. Because a component of the gospel, as we're holding out Jesus, we're having behold Jesus in His holiness, in His sinlessness, in His perfection, in His glory, eternal Son of God. We're calling people to repent. To repent of their sin. A sin that deserves judgment, deserves the wrath of God. We say, believe in Jesus and be saved by His grace. But the way an unbelieving world hears that is, how dare you judge me? How dare you call what I call holy sinful? What we, what we fail to understand a lot of times is, is those who are dead in their sin who are blinded to the truth of the gospel. They're not there in intentional, blatant rebellion thinking, ha ha, let me get God. They're happy living the life that they're living. They see nothing wrong with living the life that they're living. There is a comfort, there is a joy for many in living that life, though it is contrary to the word of God. And when we step in and we begin to call it what they call holy sin, you begin to see the rub. You begin to see the tension. You begin to see why the world says, how dare you judge me? And that's where we have to continue to remain firm with what we're preaching. Remain firm with what we're proclaiming. But we need to approach it with, with, with tender hearts. Thick skin, but tender hearts. This is what I, I love when I see Jesus' instructions to the 12 as he sends them out in verse 10. This is something that I've overlooked for I don't know how long. 
But I was studying this week and I look in verse 10 and it says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Notice what it says. Jesus is saying, whenever you enter a house, stay there. Are they going into the homes of believers? No, most likely, what are they? they're going into the homes of unbelievers. Going into the homes of unbelievers and he's saying, stay there. Stay there. Which means this is not drive-by evangelism. And you know what I'm talking about when I say drive-by evangelism? <laughs> like you're yelling and you're driving by, repent to burn! And you just keep on going. <laughs> we, we joke and jest, but there's a lot of, again, commonalities to that, to the, the type of evangelism we see today. Like we, we want to get our message across, but we fail to, to understand and to know the person we're trying to communicate with. We fail to see the person in front of us as an image bearer of God. And we can't do that. He says, stay in the house. <laughs> stay there. This means sit down over a meal. And if you're staying there, multiple meals. Sit down in the living room. Be in the house. Be in the home. An intimate environment. And have conversation. Have dialogue. Yes, talk about the gospel. Talk about current events. Make bridges to the gospel. Teach. Answer questions. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Call people to repent and to believe. But do it with patience. Do it with love. Do it with grace. Continue to call holy what God calls holy and what sin God calls sin. But love who is in front of you. And then, if they do not receive you, like Jesus with the Gerasians, remember that? After he healed the demoniac, what did the Gerasians say to him? Get out of here. <laughs> Get on. We beg you, leave from here. If, they, if they're asking you to leave and you're, you're continuing, you're preaching in grace, remember, we can't be the ones who are offensive. The gospel will be offensive. We need to approach it with love. But even if we're approaching it with love, they continue to beg us to leave. Or if they will not listen to you, as he says in his word, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What did Jesus do when he, when he left the Gerasians? He got in a boat, went back to the other side. When, he, when Jesus was rejected by his hometown, he left and then he continued to do what? To teach. He didn't stop proclaiming. He just understood that the soil, the seed as it's tossed near and far, as it's, as it's tossed out, some is going to fall on good soil and some is not. And you can't be offended by the ones that are not. You continue to pray, you continue to sow, and when it continues to be rejected, you move on and you proclaim elsewhere. If they rejected Jesus, they will reject those who follow him. That's what we, if they rejected Jesus, they will reject those who followed him. Again, Jesus was not crucified for doing nice things. He was crucified for who he claimed to be and what he was teaching about the kingdom of God. Three, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die. The grudge and hatred Herodias held against John, that was not pacified by his imprisonment. That wasn't enough. She wanted him dead. She wanted him stopped and was going to do nothing, stop at nothing to see that happen. She wanted him dead. So she seizes her opportunity at this birthday party where all these government leaders, military commanders, they're all gathered together and Herodias takes her daughter and she sends him men to Herod and all these men and she begins to dance for them. Now, let's just put it in a nice way. This wasn't a ballet or children's recital that she was dancing for. She comes in and she dances for all of these men. And we're told very clearly that they, she pleased them. Pleased them greatly. To the point where Herod is saying, hey, you, whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom, it's yours. And so she runs out to mama. And she says, hey, he says up to half of my kingdom, what are we going to do? She says, ask for John the Baptist's head. So she comes back in and she asks for John the Baptist's head. 
And here is Herod not wanting to give over John the Baptist's head. But also he can't face the pressure of the crowd. And so he agrees and sends the executioner. And back comes the executioner with the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now we look at this and there's two things that I want to point out. One, when we go, we go facing a constant pressure to conform. We go facing a constant pressure to conform. See, Herod knows John is a righteous man. He knows he's a holy man. He doesn't deserve this. But with all the nobles and the military leaders and all the people, the leaders of Galilee in the room, he's under an incredible pressure to grant the request. It kind of points us ahead to the crucifixion of Christ. Pilate sends him to Herod, Herod sends him to Pilate, and Pilate, they go back and forth, they give in to the pressure of the people. Nobody's willing to take a stand. No one's willing to make a declaration. Let's give the people what they want. The pressure to conform is a powerful thing. We understand what it is. No matter how old we get, we understand peer pressure. We understand the pressure of society that's pushing against us to, to conform. The pressure of society to, to, for us to embrace and to call holy the things that the Bible clearly calls sin. But as Christians, we must not, we cannot. The message is far too great. The consequences of unbelief are far too severe for us to placate to political correctness out of a fear of offending. If we truly love our neighbors as ourselves, we must show them Jesus. We must hold out the gospel of God and call people to repent and to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who, who lived the perfect sinless life that we were intended to live and died the death that we deserve to die for our, for our sins. But who again by the God's grace and God's power rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering our greatest enemy, the greatest storm that we will ever face, and rising from the dead, giving us a hope and a future that we do not deserve to have. As a result, we go understanding that our life is not our own. We have been bought with a price. We have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. Mark places these details of John's imprisonment and his death where he does for a reason. He's telling his original audience, he's telling us, if we want to follow Christ, we must first come to grips with the fate of John the Baptist. Because John's death is the death that points us to the death of Christ. Now this does not mean that we will lose our heads if we follow Christ. It's also no guarantee that we won't. We, we live in, a, for the most part, a very safe culture when it comes to following Christ. When, when one is baptized, and we're going to celebrate baptism in two weeks, when one is baptized in this culture, you're, you're not going to necessarily, not guarantee, but not necessarily lose all your family and lose your job. You're not going to face that type of a persecution most likely in this country yet. But in other countries, you will. In other places, you will. There's a cost to following Christ. And what we see in our country, in our time, in our culture, is a constant pressure to conform. To conform. To call holy what God calls sin. And again, this is where we must be very clear filled with grace and filled with love, but never back down from the gospel. We must continue to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. We must continue to proclaim the gospel of God and call people to repent and to believe in the biblical Jesus. It's the most loving thing that we can ever do. Do you believe in this biblical Jesus today? Are you following Him? Are you proclaiming Him? Church, we can't do this alone. It's easier to stand together than it is on our own. So let's be a, a body of believers who encourages one another, equips one another, 
stands with one another through the thick and the thin, through the storms that will come and will continue to come. But may we never, ever back away from the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you will take your word today and you will let your word do the work. We, we come before you in, in a world of uncertainty, a world of, of clutter and confusion. And Lord, it is oftentimes it's very hard to go against the tide, to swim against the current. But Lord, I pray that in the midst of the storms of life and the confusion that abounds, Lord, we will be that bright light. That we will be the ones holding out Christ in all His glory and all His splendor. And we'll be calling people to repent and to believe. Come believe in this glorious Jesus. Come find the peace that He has made by the blood of His cross. Come trusting the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. Come to Jesus and live. Come to Jesus and eat. Come to Jesus and dine with him forever. Come to Jesus. Oh Lord, we pray that people come to Jesus. And Lord, that we who are in Christ will continue to stand. We'll continue to rest in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and let's join in, in response as we sing together.